AVXL episode 186 was recorded on June 28th, 2022. We got LGB2 OLED ratings, getting your sub and speakers set up right. Let me tell you, crossover frequencies are fun. Macintosh drops an $8,500 AM FM radio and quite a bit more. Don't forget to email ask at AVXL.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Really, thank you. Seriously, thank you to everyone that supports us at Patreon.com slash AVXL. Your monthly contributions make this podcast possible, and we really appreciate you. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I was uh, shocked. I get... Uh, emails from mediaplaynews.com. It's a lot of what's successfully streaming, what's going on. It's kind of like variety, but for something that's not as Hollywood an audience. I don't know what I'm saying here, but I was shocked because uh, every so often I see something pop up and uh, I was shocked, I'll say it again, that the top 50 disc sellers, uh, and they, they divided this up by format market share, right? Percentage of units sold. Uh, this was MPD Video Scan. This is Media Play News Research, MediaPlayNews.com. I want to throw some love their way again. So for that particular week, 44.3% of the top 50 discs were DVDs. 36.5% of the top 50 discs were Blu-rays, and 19.2% of the top 50 discs were UHD 4K Blu-rays. So roughly 20% UHD, 36% Blu-ray, and 44-ish plus percent DVD. So DVDs are still stupid popular. Hell yeah. I guess I'm not surprised by that at all. <sighs> I want to not be surprised, but I was watching a, a movie I really love that it, it has not and probably will not ever come out on Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, I, I got a 100-inch screen, and that DVD, even with its quality upscaling, was a little lacking. <laughs> Gets a little fuzzy when you start blasting that fuzzy. up to 80-plus inches, definitely. I would like a better transfer, please. It looks like uh, ACTV test got a hold of the Eversol Fabulous. Well, it, we what we hope... And I hope what everyone listening probably hopes is the ever so fabulous Sony A95K QD OLED TV. How did it fare in the testing? I would encourage you to check out the video, but uh, Mr. Vincent Tio <laughs> <laughs> clearly likes this TV. I believe, I believe he declares it the best of 2022 as far as your 55 and 65 Whoa. inch screen size options go. The interesting part for me was some side-by-side -side that he did with the Samsung S95B, the other QD OLED TV you can currently buy. And in the particular video clip he starts out with, it's showing both TVs playing a looped piece of video, uh, motion video, not a static screen, but say like a 10-second clip that is just being looped over and over again for demonstration purposes. The S95B's screen dimming algorithm, it aggressively dims the picture compared to Sony's A95K, which even over a period of minutes hmm. maintained typical brightness compared to what the S95B was doing. It, again, it's worth checking out that video if you're interested in either of those TVs. And again, this is also something clearly that Samsung will likely address in a future firmware update. But it's one of the ways that Samsung is perhaps protecting the S95B, at least in this initial launch state it's in, by dimming that screen whenever possible, even though it isn't, quote unquote, static imagery on the screen. That was just a 
it seemed odd. I could understand it if you had it like paused on both screens. Then they should, I would imagine the Sony A95K as well would also dim its picture accordingly if it's just sitting there for a few minutes. But this was with moving video and it still triggered that dimming algorithm on Samsung's S95B. And I found that pretty interesting. And speaking of OLED reviews, LG's <laughs> B2, a value version of their 120 hertz panel technology in an OLED form. The ratings crew got a hold of it, and I forget which size screen they were testing. I'll put a link to the review in the show notes, of course. Overall, it's not quite as bright as a C2, let alone their premium gallery series or G2 model, but the B2 offers pretty typical OLED brightness. About 500 nits max for your SDR content, about 700 nits max for your HDR content. The built-in video processor isn't quite as advanced as the C2 or the G2, and it has half the number of full bandwidth HDMI ports, if that's important to you, but it still does include at least two. And it will be interesting to see what, uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but what OLED formula that the B2 will eventually use. LG Display, not to be confused with LG Electronics, has mentioned that they are transitioning their manufacturing across the entire OLED product line to that deuterium-enhanced OLED material for improved brightness. But the B series, compared to specifically the C series, doesn't feature that brightness booster technology, which is a combination of not only the hardware or that new OLED formula, but software as well to actually take advantage of it. Overall, I was actually surprised at how I have to say, decent the B2 appears. If you do not need all of the bells and whistles of a C2 or a G2, I almost suggest taking a good long look at that B2 just for the savings alone. Available in screen sizes of 55, 65, and 77 inches right now. It seems like, though, if I'm getting this right, the, the biggest change, the biggest step up from the B2 to the C2 is going to be the brightness, i.e. its ability to deal with having a lamp on in the room while you're watching. I mean... Do I have that right? I would think so. But when I looked at the actual numbers they measured, they really weren't mm -hmm. that much different from, you know, a traditional regular yeah. OLED TV that you'd see out there. Yeah, the C2, I think unless you had them side by side, the B2 and the C2 specifically, you'd be hard pressed right. to really just say, oh, this TV is okay. way too dim for an OLED. It, it seemed right in the ballpark of where it should be. Now, the G2 with its other technologies, the brightness booster max and its heat dissipation technology give it an advantage over the c2 and that would likely be a very distinct difference between those panels but the g2 is also uh, their premium flagship product for 2022 so it's going to cost you more on that this i see is just perhaps the ultimate bedroom tv or again like mm -hmm. someone who absolutely doesn't need you know four full bandwidth hdmi 2.1 ports and other specific right. features and maybe that brightness booster feature to get you a few more nits but that 500 for sdr 700 for hdr that's pretty typical it was better than i thought it would be to be honest with you nothing wrong with that no not at all so i've had some amusement recently testing a sound bar because i realized uh i haven't you know i haven't reviewed it on avxl yet but uh i realized to test this sound bar i was going to need to place my tv somewhere other than where it was located because there's you know atmos built into the sound bar and of course it needs to bounce it off of the ceiling and the ceiling in question was not going to do anything for the atmos performance you were having some fun setting up a new value soundbar what did uh, what's the tip that you pulled out of your 
emotionally traumatic and trying experience, <laughs> he says, sassily. <laughs> In this particular case, I would start off by just suggesting you take a look at your TV's audio settings, particularly if you have a newer television. Nowadays, all of these TVs seem to be defaulting to a sound mode that will simply convert all of the sound that it receives, be it internally through apps or perhaps with connected devices, into a particular audio format. In LG's case, with some of their newer TVs, they pretty much convert everything to Dolby Atmos when possible for playback. Now, in the case of the soundbar I was using, it was not Dolby Atmos enabled. And the key for me was when I actually was listening to some Dolby Digital 5.1 tracks through this soundbar, it kind of lacks some oomph and distinctiveness in the playback quality. Hmm. And I was left going, huh, I wonder what's causing that. And with a quick trip into the audio settings, I enabled either PCM audio or a pass-through mode, if available, that leaves that original audio format, whatever it is, as is, and then let the soundbar take the processing from there. And like I mentioned, in this case, it was a non-Atmos, but Dolby Digital-capable soundbar, and that sound was degraded, to say the least, by leaving it where the TV was converting to something like, say, Dolby Digital Plus, plus the Atmos metadata, and then feeding that to the soundbar, and then the soundbar's just pulling the Dolby Digital signal from that. Uh, I think there is some case in there to be said that if your soundbar is not Dolby Atmos compatible and you're connecting it to a display device that's converting everything to Dolby Atmos, do take a look again at those TV audio output settings. Try something like PCM or, if available, a pass-through mode to leave that format as is. The only exception to this, I would say, would be if you're using a Dolby Atmos soundbar, it may not make a difference at all, or it may be better to actually leave the TV audio output set to auto or auto conversion to Dolby Atmos mode and then feed it to your soundbar as normal. But if you want to avoid audio format conversions in your soundbar listening experience, that pass-through mode, or PCM if a pass-through mode isn't available, can be your friend and can actually do wonders in terms of just improving clarity and positioning effects and overall sound quality. It's just something to check, particularly with value soundbars that may not be supporting the latest and greatest audio formats. <laughs> and also, quite frankly, I, I hate to slag on any TV manufacturer, but its interpretation of audio signal reprocessing may not be state-of-the-art. They are probably spending their money elsewhere. If you do work for LG or Samsung or TCL or anybody else and you feel that I have grossly miscategorized uh, the amount of money and engineering effort spent on audio processing in your televisions, by all means, email us, ask at avxl.com. Indeed. Yes. Seems to fall into the keep it simple, stupid rule. <laughs> it really is. Or maybe you would really like to hear the audio as it was originally created. And I find this more the case of when I'm listening to YouTube. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes that conversion to Atmos or some Atmos related flavor actually does make the overall listening experience better because it takes away some of the, the roughness of that original recording that may not have been <laughs> performed with the best equipment or in the best uh, editing mode or... It can do a lot to help, <laughs> less than ideal sources. And in the case of uh, YouTube that I mentioned, most of that content's still in PCM audio as a default, uh, usually PCM stereo, and it can often be quite rough. A little Atmos conversion in certain cases actually doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> but if you want that original flavor, yeah, minimize your conversions when possible when dealing with audio formats.
I mean, it seems like also, I, I realize you notice it the most with YouTube, but I th wouldn't it also be kind of problematic with certain watching it smirch, listening to it smirch soundtracks into something that it thinks the soundbar can handle? He says, well, glancing at all of the speakers nailed to various surfaces in his living room. <laughs> in my case, it was, a, I believe, a movie that I was watching on YouTube that ended up... Right. Uh, being converted by the TV to Dolby Atmos when, in fact, it was originally Dolby Digital. And there was Ooh. some mucking about in that conversion. We're going to give you a height. Bar, which led me <laughs> down the this snake week. is on the ground. Exactly. No, 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 we're going to give you height. <laughs> it was a good reminder to just check that audio setting and try it and give it a listen. And you may be surprised that, wow, suddenly everything sounds better. Because also, most of the broadcast content we look at on regular TV is done in Dolby Digital still. And it's sometimes yeah. good just to leave that as is and send it right to the speaker. There you have it, people. So uh, Samsung's new kind of, I guess, well, I, I think I will call it a flagship because it is the uh, QN900B Samsung Neo QLED 8K Smart TV. You got to calibrate one. You were kind of, You were really curious going into this one about what that television was going to look like and measure in the flesh. I did. Pixels. And I will say I came away pretty impressed overall. It is a premium TV with a premium price tag currently uh, to reflect that. It is, yeah. I would say, Samsung's best TV for 2022. And it truly is a visual delight. The one thing that jumps out to me immediately looking at this particular design is their quote-unquote infinity screen, which is effectively bezel-less. It is just a right. nice thin bit of ribbon of metal around the very edge. It is adorable, not adorable, it is the way I would like all TVs to look, to be honest with you. It's nice having that screen go right to the very edge. Right. It is bright. It is superbly bright. It easily pushed over 2300 nits in HDR, and that was post-calibration. If I put it into some lesser modes, or maybe I was just looking for the maximum light output possible, it would easily crest 2600 and beyond. Wow. It had light to go in that mini LED design. Pair that with the superb anti-reflective filter that it has on that screen, and it is great for a bright room. It is wonderful for that respect alone. The SDR performance with your regular content, it can be well calibrated to reference quality. By default, the TV has some of the typical Samsung, I'll say, picture quirks in terms of boosting brightness and crushing detail for that more contrasted look. The TV did feature superb color saturation as well. For both your SDR, you're going to be able to hit that no problem. But HDR as well, where it's more important to have an accurate wide color palette. However, I did find the color management system controls, the things you would actually go in to adjust the primary and secondary colors to get them right where they need to be, it was pretty weak and almost to the point where I ended up just leaving it alone. It just uh, didn't touch them at all. A couple of features about this particular TV on the QN900B that stood out to me as well is it's one connect box. It is a nice separate box that contains all of the inputs and all of the connections and everything with a single cable running out to the TV. And in this case, this was a wall mounted design and the owner was in the middle of remodeling their living room and house or having the whole place redone effectively. So there was a lot of construction and things going on. But one thing they did was put a recessed wall section behind the TV that housed that one connect box and kept it out of the way oh, wow. where you didn't need to like zip tie it to the back of the TV on the mount or anything like that. 
And because this TV was mounted over an existing fireplace, the remodeling ended up incorporating a cabinet-sized area to the side that was perfect for stashing AV gear right behind the screen itself. Since that fireplace had an open gap in certain cases, if ignoring say like the chimney system and whatever for your fireplace, mm -hmm. there was space available behind that wall surface the TV was mounted to to be able to create this cabinet sized area. And it was really nice in terms of the look and finish and being able to put all of your gear behind the screen and out of the way and out of sight. Uh, yeah, I really liked it. It is lovely. Uh, the QN900B is also a premium TV for the price tag. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a 65-inch television that's currently selling for $4,800. Yeah. Um, and if you bump yourself up to the 75-inch version that's currently on Amazon for six grand, and the 85-inch version is a healthy $8,000. Is this an alternative for people who have rooms that are too bright for the flagship OLEDs? Or do you feel like this is a one, you know, this is a legit alternative no matter how much light you have in the room uh, versus the flagship OLEDs? That's a tough call. I, without a doubt, this would be one of the most ideal TVs to use in a brightly lit room, period. It, it has the light output. And I believe the improvements over the 900A series from last year are enough to actually justify it. However, if you look at the shopping lists right now on the various websites, you'll find that 900A model, uh, the 2021 900A model, still available for a significant discount. And that's probably what's keeping the 900B currently still at literally list MSRP pricing. So that's something to keep in mind. If I had one wish for Samsung TVs in general, it was that they would provide better calibration controls. Mm -hmm. Something like the lookup table programming that's available on LG TVs and projectors and perhaps even a day-night expert mode with everything kind of already close to spec where you're not having to fiddle around with the various controls in there to undo some of those quote-unquote quirks of that brightness and contrast enhancement that Samsung does just to grab your eyeballs, literally. But overall, <laughs> uh, between the absolute brightness and that bezel design and the anti-reflective coating, those three alone are just like, okay, this is the best of Samsung's 2022 technology in one package. It's not cheap, no, but it is visually very, very cool. <laughs> I enjoyed my time with it. We like digitally very cool. <laughs> he said awkwardly. So shifting gears a little bit up into the higher high end, maybe not the highest high end, but uh, a bunch of news uh, around Macintosh the audio manufacturer uh, dropped this month. First of all, for sheer perverse delight, I'm going to talk about the MR89 AM FM tuner, which I just, the first line is just big blue meters and a radio. AM FM 260 dB, big fat meters on the front of this box. You know, this is a $8,000 to $8,500 AM FM radio to match your Macintosh gear. Um, it offers... RCA and possibly in the only example I've ever seen or heard of in my life, balanced outputs from an AM FM radio. Uh, they also, uh, it's funny because it, I mean, you laugh, right? But it also has digital coax and digital optical outputs, um, essentially so that if you are working with some very serious slash crazy uh, home theater or integrator installed uh, AV system, you can, I believe, get the AM FM radio into the whole house distribution. We don't do a lot of high-end uh, integration stuff here. 
simply because it's just not very accessible and it's a very personalized experience based on you and your local installer. So one, that came out. Uh, two, uh, Macintosh was sold, and it is now back to being owned by a single U.S. company, uh, what I will describe as a private equity firm, but essentially uh, Highland Partners LP announced that they bought the Macintosh Group uh, earlier in June. And uh, if you haven't heard of the Macintosh Group, it's essentially Macintosh, Sonos, Farber of speaker fame, and uh, they uh, also do the, they basically have the rights for North, Central, and South American distribution of Project, which is Turntables and Audio Gear, Rotel, which is uh, amplifiers and electronics and basso continuo and my apologies to any italian listeners out there uh they are a high-end audio rack manufacturer the basic quote here from highlander uh one of highlander's partner a man named ben slater was macintosh group sits at the intersection of several strong trends that we are eager to be a part of the residential environment is rapidly evolving with technology becoming an integral opponent throughout the home moreover consumers across the demographic spectrum are demanding high fidelity audio now more than ever and premium brands such as macintosh and sonos faber are increasingly viewed as functional pieces of art i have mixed feelings about this not because i'm particularly ever going to be able to uh, spend a giant i i own my first amplifier was bought in no small part uh because it had great big meters on the front you know this is like 30 years ago um this is my first big boy adult amplifier you know ironically i got lucky and got a uh fairly over-engineered amplifier for my money that was much better than I deserved for my meter uh, lusting intense. Um, but, you know, the reality is, you know, most people are not going to be able to afford this stuff uh, because it is expensive. But one of the things we've discovered over the year is if you make really nice stuff really well, it tends to, the company at least, tends to hold its value. Um, see exotic car manufacturers and super high-end furniture manufacturers. I mean, the other thing that came out, uh, I want to say, I'm not quite sure when the release was. I think it was earlier in May. Uh, Macintosh did the uh, MX180 AV processor, the MA8950 stereo integrated amplifier, and the MA9500 stereo integrated amplifier. Uh, what you might also refer to as a receiver, those integrated amplifiers. Um, well, I guess they don't really have AM, FM in them. But uh, their AV processor, essentially the box that takes the signal from your Apple TV or your Roku or whatever, your, your Blu-ray player, uh, and sends it out to individual amplifiers via balanced ports, you know, that's a $17,000 AV processor, right? Uh, you know, these integrated amplifiers... Uh, the 8950 is nine grand. The ME 9500 is 12 grand. They are pretty, or at least they have Macintosh's distinctive style, which you either love or hate, right? It looks totally. like something that could be, you know what I mean? It, it look, yeah, I mean, it looks like something that could be on the set of a certain movie involving HAL 9000 and blend in perfectly, even though they just released it uh, last month. Um, you know, they also have an incredibly high standard of performance and an incredibly high standard of support. And as expensive as, as those uh, stereo-integrated amplifiers might sound, they're fairly affordable compared to the uh, tube hybrid MH12000, which costs like $14,000. So, right. Uh, you know, it's everything's relative. <laughs> it really you know, is. The MA, and it, you know, these are also, by the way, uh, staggeringly powerful, the, those integrated amplifiers. The ME8950 is like 200 watts per channel. The ME9500 is 300 watts per channel. And they do not care if you are 
feeding uh, eight ohm, four ohm, or two ohm speakers. You buy this once and uh, it will probably never break and you will probably never need to replace it unless you lust for something else. Um, you know, that, that's more power than damn near any speaker on the planet uh, is ever going to need. It appears to be built like a tank and something you will likely oh, yeah. not outlast. <laughs> so be prepared to uh, include these in your estate planning. <laughs> Somebody's yeah. going to want them. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I do not particularly want tube amplification because I do not need second order warm fuzzy harmonics to have a, you know, a euphonic experience with my audio. Right. That said, there's a lot of Macintosh tube gear that is pretty damn clean. Vintage Macintosh gear is spendy. Uh, it holds its value. Maybe not what you initially paid for it, but it's not like you're going to find this stuff cheap. Look, last time I saw any Macintosh gear at a garage sale, I guess it was more of an estate sale. They wanted $700 for it. And it was probably going to need to be completely gone through by a, uh, a tech before you wanted to connect it to any serious speakers. I will flat out say I would love to have a giant rack of big blue beaters uh, in my stereo system or home theater. You know, so if anybody out there was thinking about recycling them, call me. <laughs> Heck yeah. I will, I will take care of the recycling for you. If the so, weight is too uh, much, let me know. I'll be right over. And, and there's also part of me that's like, well, almost every vehicle I own costs less than that MR89 AM FM tuner. So there's that. And all of them had an AFM, AM, FM radio inside. <laughs> Probably not as good. Certainly not including Macintosh's proprietary AM, FM circuitry. But I just want to say that. You know, hey, look, a couple of the most amazing home theater belts I've ever seen in my life included a big old stack of Macintosh amps and sometimes their speakers. So, uh, you know, I, I also, I you know, I talked to a dealer friend of mine and he flat out, he, he doesn't expect the purchase to negatively impact uh, Macintosh, he thinks the company's uh, going to keep doing what it does at the level cool. it does. Uh, mostly, he just hopes that an infusion of capital allows them to deliver more production capacity. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, Macintosh gear has like a four to six month wait. Uh, Sonos Faber speakers, there's like a three to six months wait. And he's like, it's a capacity issue. It's just they can't, they don't have enough people to build the, the enough stuff to meet the market demand. This isn't a COVID supply chain issue. So here's to hoping that Macintosh keeps on doing what it keeps on doing and that uh, their new owners can get them the money they need to increase capacity. Although, you know, that anticipation, that waiting period may make the eventual delivery of your 300 pound amplifier even more delightful. So just a thought. Epic unboxing for sure. Hey, I am a fan of dual monitor setups for my workstation PC <laughs> use. I have always been that way, or at least as long as I can remember. As long as I had access to two monitors or more, I've hooked them up. Right. And this caught my eye last week. It was the launch of LG's new dual up monitor with the Ergo Stand, a $700 monitor available right now on LG's website. The thing that jumps out immediately is the aspect ratio of this particular panel design. It is 16 by 18. It is taller than it is wide. And I consider this literally the ultimate vertical display, or at least a very useful looking design if you take a look at it. It's an IPS panel, so you have the good off-axis performance. It's HDR compatible. It only gets up to about 300 nits. So while you have a good wide color palette in terms of the DCI color coverage, yeah, you don't have like epic 500 or 1000 nits, let alone 
or greater than that. That stand I mentioned, the Ergo stand, is actually a clamp style stand that clamps to the back of your desk. And overall, I would look at this mostly as the ultimate productivity monitor, in a sense. It makes it much easier to use a single display with multiple windows where you can just stack them on top of each other. Or in the case they show on LG's website, somebody's actually got the video editing window at the top with the video editing controls right under it. I just think that if you're already doing a single monitor or you're more interested in productivity than, you know, the particular 16 by 9 typical display out there, this is one to keep an eye on. The price isn't exactly cheap, of course, but I find a lot to like about it just in terms of that style, especially if you're already using. Uh, for me, I immediately thought of this as a secondary display. I would love to have this on the side just for those particular features. Rather than rotate my 16 by 9 monitor, I end up with something that's a little closer to square, a little wider, uh, a little more usable real estate in terms of the picture. Uh, the model number on this sucker is the 28MQ780, which should indicate that it's about a 28-inch monitor, a little hair short of that. And it has 2560 by 2880 resolution. And it has built-in speakers and other stuff like that too. But otherwise, I, I, I just look at this more for the, the compact productivity. If I could have just one like business monitor, that would be one I would have on my short list for sure if the budget permits. <laughs> it immediately appealed to me as perhaps an ideal secondary display for just having long documents or multiple windows or something like that. Uh, give it a look. It's, it's got a unique shape to it that immediately makes it stand out. It makes me long for the days of just even 16 by 10 monitors, really, and how rare those are nowadays. I just prefer that additional bit of screen height in my displays. And this one will give it to you for sure <laughs> with that 16 by 18 <laughs> layout. Wow. It's pretty cool. I dig that design. I was fascinated when Teenage Engineering did a PC case, the monitor they showed it with was a square monitor. Ooh. And everybody's like, what is it? And it turns <laughs> out it's a, it, it's an ISO, uh, EIZO, ISO monitor, the EV2730Q, oh. which is a 26.5 inch square 1920 by 1920 uh, IPS panel. Probably not what you want to be using, um, you know, for gaming. But a massive amount of, of vertical information, uh, if you're looking for that. Eye-catching format. Also very stylish. Uh, I find teenage engineering design uh, fascinating. And I think I found out about them when I subscribe for a Playdate, which is the little tiny gaming device with the crank on the side, which arrived last week. Aww. Um, which my 10-year-old has been mildly obsessed with ever since it arrived. But... Uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with lots and lots of vertical space in a monitor, especially if you work with documents. Totally. Uh, that mimics uh, yeah. the setup I currently use, where I have a, a 16 by 9 monitor, regular landscape view for my primary display. But then I also have an older business class monitor that is 16 by 10, but it is rotating right. vertically. And I use that as my secondary display for all the, like you just said, yeah. documents to you name it. It's just handy to have. Programming. <laughs> Programmers that love too. them some vertical. That too. Oh my goodness. Uh, quick shout out on Netflix, uh, who has confirmed, and it's been covered in a bunch of places. Uh, there's not much detail, but essentially Netflix says a cheaper ad-supported plan is coming, probably by the end of 2022. 
sometime in the fourth quarter. Um, I don't think it's going to impact existing plan prices. I think this is more trying to scoop up people who just don't want to pay for the service currently uh, to give them uh, a lower entry point. And uh, there's not much detail other than that it's coming and that, you know, Reed Hastings and Co. know it works because it's worked for a bunch of other places. I think that's cool. Hey, everybody, uh, in case you get this before the 30th, we're going to give a shout out to JJ4884, who messaged us on patreon.com slash AVXL with an awesome Woot deal. Uh, and it's a link to One More's wired piston fit in-ear earphones for a whopping $9.99. Um, good until June 30th or until sold out. Uh, so the Bluetooth version of the Piston Fits are Lauren Dragon's wire cutter pick for the best wireless earbuds under 50 bucks. They sell for $25, by the way. So wow. if you can imagine a non-sucky Bluetooth in-ear for 25 bucks, that is what this is. We've seen some good stuff out of One More. Do me a favor, by the way, if you decide to buy those wireless one more piston fit the bluetooth version go to the wire cutter and click on uh, the link there because lauren dragon has listened to a billion cheap earbuds and she deserves to get paid for her suffering because i've heard a bunch of the cheap earbuds that she's listened to and it is not a pleasant experience yeah i picked up a pair of the piston fits i will uh, compare those to panasonic's 14 rp tcm 125 which i was somewhat less than impressed with the last time i listened to it but maybe i uh maybe i'm feeling more love for the panasonic in any case uh if you just need a cheap thing to listen to music you don't care that much about uh, those panasonics will certainly do it and i think there's like two hundred thirty-five thousand reviews of them on amazon i am by the way being hyperbolic when i say that i'm using hyperbole that is a great price being... and i appreciate yeah. having options like that especially if they're daily drivers and they're going to take some abuse and they're going to get you know tossed around or shoved in your pocket or whatever yeah. this is something i'd be a lot more comfortable doing that rough and tumble usage style with <laughs> i appreciate the they bargain. are not expensive um yeah if you got a kid that's got to buy their own earbuds uh this is the direction to point them <laughs> yes speaking of patreon.com slash avxl the place where people who support the podcast by contributing each and every month to the podcast and we thank each and every one of you and right now we're going to give a shout out to fernando martin timothy stanton wayne mowat Kevin Darbercow, Michael Baden, and Thomas Prosima, who joined in between June and August of 2016. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued patronage. Patronage? I'm having wordage <laughs> issue. I like it. it I works. am for speaking not good. In any case, uh, shout out to all of our patrons, especially Fernando, Timothy, Wayne, Kevin, Michael, and Thomas. And if you haven't heard your name yet, keep listening. We'll get to you. I promise. Indeed. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, keep an eye on uh, patreon.com slash AVXL for our July hangout information and a little bit more detail on that. Uh, dude, I got a crazy question from James R. All um, right. But RO3D and Dolby Atmos and setting up a surround sound room. Uh, James wrote, I am building a movie room. I've been torn between the RO3D and Dolby Atmos setups. Uh, the voice of God, the VOG speaker, and the way RO3D set up their height speakers really interests me. I have not heard a movie in this format, as it is primarily in Europe. What are your thoughts, suggestions on this? Thanks for the insight, James R. So this led me down a rabbit hole. Oh, what a rabbit hole it was. Because in part, I don't think a new movie has been released in RO3D since 2016. 
but well. uh, the short answer is RO3D, a competitor to Dolby Atmos and DTSX, feels kind of dead. Uh, I don't think there's been a new title since 2016. It's not available on streaming anywhere, as far as I can tell. And if my research is right, uh, a lot of times RO3D mixes weren't available on discs that were distributed in the United States. So there was like an RO3D version of this very short list of movies, but you probably couldn't get the RO3D version if you were purchasing the disc in the United States. Meanwhile, in between getting James's question and this podcast, RO3D filed for bankruptcy and, uh, as part of its road to recovery. We wish them well. Short answer is I would not consider an RO3D speaker layout. Um, that said, because I have nerded out and because James asked, let me talk to you about RO3D. The basic RO3D, the original RO3D is eight speakers. Four speakers at ear level and four speakers above ear level. What they consider the basic is like a 9.1 setup where there was five speakers at ear level, left, center, right, left, surround, rear, surround, and then four additional speakers, left, front, right, front, left, surround, right, surround, height, essentially at an elevated level. The dot one being a subwoofer. Uh, and then if you went to RO3D 10.1, you also got what they called the VOG or Voice of God speaker, which was a single speaker directly above the listeners. You know, the basic implementation of RO3D was like eight speakers, the four surround and four height in the corner. Uh, and to get that over channel, you end up with like 11 speakers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten speakers um, plus a subwoofer. This is interesting. Some people liked it. RO3D claimed it was a better way to implement surround sound than anything that Dolby and DTS was doing. Right. Folks that I trust that have heard or spent a bunch of quality time with both uh, uh, Atmos or, or with Atmos and DTSX and RO3D, they kind of discount the claims that RO3D is better. I think the bigger challenge is the original RO3D was channel-based, not object-based. So it didn't offer as interesting or compelling an experience as Dolby Atmos or DTSX, at least for sound designers, right? Because when you have object-based audio, you have the ability to have this pinpoint control of individual sounds uh, in the listening space. That said, RO3D came out with RO Max, which added object sound options, if I understand correctly. But the challenge is, is that RO3D is far, far behind uh, uh, Dolby or, or DTSX uh, in the streaming community or in the streaming world and the disc world, as far as I can tell. So short answer is, James, it is an interesting uh, channel layout based on the experience of people who have had more time than RO3D than I ever will, the claimed advantages of their Voice of God speaker and their additional height speakers are less uh, dramatic than they would have you think. And the reality is, is in a lot of cases, for example, the way my home theater is set up, you know, the rear at most height channels uh, I use instead of an additional rear uh, uh, surround sound channels. And it is a pretty compelling experience as far as I'm concerned. Nice. Hopefully this helps. <laughs> I am a proponent of taking a look at what are your sources of content? Is it broadcast yeah. TV? Is it discs? Is it gaming? Is it streaming through your favorite services? And what are they delivering the audio in? And yeah. Atmos is everywhere, to be honest with you. Or Dolby something. So having that Atmos layout, if you're able to do height channels, is going to give you terrific compatibility with the variety of content out there. Be it Dolby Atmos yeah. enabled or not you're going to get more out of it in this day and age. Yeah. It would be nice if all of the streaming channels had all of the Atmos. 
Um, but, uh, you know, you have to have a premium account. Last True. I checked on Netflix, um, Amazon Prime Video has some Dolby Atmos. Uh, Vudo uh, originally had the largest Dolby Atmos catalog. You know, Disney Plus has been pretty good about supporting Atmos. Take some time. Check it out. Listen to what Rob said. Because uh, there's also, if you're never going to listen to anything that uses Atmos, there's probably not a whole lot of point in installing it in your home theater. But uh, we can we'll let you figure that out for yourself. <laughs> and if you do have a disc so, player, particularly maybe a 4K with Dolby Atmos support, uh, consider Mad Max Fury Road. That is the one Atmos. That is the movie soundtrack. people go to with a soundtrack that just lays it out there in well-implemented fury <laughs> literally <laughs> in terms of being able oh to perceive goodness. and listen and take advantage of a good dolby atmos setup it is one of the uh one of the fun test cases out there hmm. i will say the first atmos soundtrack i ever heard uh was gravity uh Ooh. and it was well it's very rare that i have an experience where i'm like this changes everything but really after hearing that opening sequence in gravity all i could think was this changes everything um i want it you know i want it now yeah maybe maybe not for like you know light ensemble stuff with a lot of witty dialogue uh between a couple of people in the center of the screen but for an action movie it was pretty amazing Oh, one other thing about Mad Max Fury Road is it was one of the initial pieces of video that they would show when demonstrating Dolby Vision and TVs with yeah. wide color palettes. In particular, there are a couple of sequences with flames shooting out of the guitar player in the movie, uh, and those were triggering some of the widest colors uh, yet experienced or some of the richest, most saturated colors that were available in at least home entertainment at the time. And when folks began to adopt Dolby Atmos as far as speaker setups in the home as well, and especially the release on disc, that particular movie, I think, is just one yeah. of those reference discs that's good to keep around to either show off the system. And it's kind of a fun movie, too. I actually like that movie a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, but for I mean, audio and video, it serves lots of good purposes in terms of uh, testing out a system in a good way. Yeah, no, I mean, also you've got Charlize Theron, Tom Hardy. I, yeah, yeah. I'll watch Tom Hardy read a phone book. Um, Dispatch <laughs> uh, him with the love. Possibly the best radio interview I've ever heard in my life. Just, I'll find a link and I'll talk about it next week. Martin is still in hot pursuit of better sub bass and bass for his home theater. He wrote, uh, ask at AV Excel. In episode 176, you talked me off the ledge from replacing my Kef T2 subwoofer with a Kef KC62 as a companion to my five Kef T301s. I've been looking at new subwoofers ever since. I'm still constrained by size and placement, but it looks like I can do way better at the low frequency and higher frequency than the KC62. Thanks. And I don't want to trash KC62. It's a fascinating subwoofer and a fine piece of engineering. I think you can spend less money and get better performance. You know, it is a very pretty subwoofer. It's a good uh, call. And there is some fascinating engineering inside of it. Martin adds, you pointed out that my T301s drop off at around 200 hertz. I can get a new subwoofer with a high of around 220 hertz or more. It seems to me that the right thing to do is run my AVR room correction with a new subwoofer and then manually set the subwoofer crossover on my AVR to 200 hertz or the highest setting it will go. Am I missing something? Most everyone talks about 80 or 120 hertz crossover. I am slightly confused. Thanks, Martin. P.S. I'm being vague about the AVR since I currently own an older Denon and I will replace it soon with a new Denon or Yamaha. When you look at the KEF uh, 301s, 
they drop from like 85 dB to 75 dB between 200 and 100 hertz. So around 200 hertz, they start to drop off a cliff, right? These are very specific speakers that are engineered to take up the minimum amount of space while being wall mounted, and they just don't have the volume to deliver bass. They are also, you know, a little trebly for some people, but you know, if you have a room full of soft furnishings and curtains, I don't think it's as uh, atrocious as some online folks have described it after looking at the frequency response. But look, these are speakers that are designed to be put in a room where you just don't have a lot of room to put speakers, right? Most what I will affectionately call serious subs when you're looking at like SHU, SVS, Monoprices, Monolith, uh, you know, I could go on, but I will not put anyone to sleep today, or at least I'm trying not to. They are fairly flat between 100 and 200 hertz. They're often fairly flat between like 20, 25, 30 hertz and 200 hertz. I love the RSL Speedwoofer, but it drops about 7 dB between 145 hertz and 200 hertz. So great match for a bookshelf speaker, not a great match for those Kef uh, T301s. So you essentially have the crux of the matter sorted out. Uh, at least in theory, Martin, right? Because you're going to want the, the subwoofer or low frequency channel to run up to about 200 hertz. You may have to fight a little bit with your AVR to do this. Uh, at the very least, you want to set the speakers uh, to small or better yet, your hopefully your AVR will give you the option to specify a crossover frequency. I would start with 200 hertz or 175 hertz and work my way down to 150 hertz, but I suspect somewhere between 175 and 200 hertz is going to be the crossover that works uh, for your 5301 speakers. Experimentation and listening and measuring, if you can get them you know, an inexpensive microphone and a copy of REW will be incredibly useful because the automatic setups does not always get this right. Uh, or, you know, the, the fewer options that your AVR gives you in terms of the crossover for the, for the speakers, the more frustrating this is going to be, right? So when you see those options, large, small, what they're essentially saying is the small speakers, you're right, right? They usually give you the option of, uh, you know, 80 or 120 hertz for a small speaker, and then the large speaker is 40 hertz and above, and they want to give everything under 40, or if you do the small speaker settings, 80 hertz over to the to the subwoofer through right. the low frequency or subwoofer channel. That said, there are lots of very small speakers that would do much better with a, a 200 hertz or 150 hertz crossover than, <laughs> you know than what they offer. Again, dig through the settings, look at the manual before you buy the AVR, you know, be ready to experiment. THX, right? They generally want to cut the subwoofer off at 80 hertz because any THX speaker should go down to at least 80 hertz, but you're not dealing with a THX speaker. So listen, experiment, pay attention to the settings. And if you can find the manual for any AVR you're looking for and make sure it gives you the ability to set the speakers, your, your, your left, your right, your center, your surround sound speakers to the crossover point you want, because you're going to be really pissed if you've got this hole between 100 and 200 Hertz, <laughs> right? <laughs> because your AVR is like, no, no. I'm now channeling uh, the the terrible autopilot from uh, Wally. No, because uh, <laughs> oh, I've had that experience where I'm like, this is not going to work. And the AVR is like, I don't have any other options. Um, I digress. But uh, you're on the right track, Martin. Yeah, you basically want everything under 200 hertz to go to your sub or subwoofers, and you want everything over 200 hertz or 175 or 150 hertz, depending on what sounds best to your ears in the room, to go to those speakers, and you need to dig into the settings on the AVR 
preferably before you buy it, to make sure you can actually do that. Good luck. Excellent. Since I was watching Mission Impossible, you know, <laughs> your assignment, should you choose to accept it. <laughs> hey, that's a fun This one. podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. I'm always fascinated by the results of an auto calibration setup just to see what values it comes up with for things like the subwoofer or even individual speakers. Because sometimes it'll provide a, a, a key to the room layout or the room sound design or it needs to be in order to work properly in a room. I've seen everything from where it does effectively hard tweaking to the sub up to right. one specific speaker in the room that is uh, in a slightly different location, symmetrically speaking, compared to the other speakers <laughs> that ends up getting boosted or dropped uh, right. depending on that location itself. It, again, like you said, experimentation is the way to go. And listen. <laughs> yeah. I like and it. And if you don't want to listen, then get a microphone or, or get a... Uh, 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 you know, we should, we should talk about this some next week, but it's, yeah. it's amazing what you can do with a, uh, an SPL meter. If you have the right SPL meter or a copy of REW, um, we could probably spend several weeks just talking about that alone. But, uh, again, I digress. Indeed. Well, I had to laugh at myself this week. It took me uh -oh. way longer to realize than I would care to admit uh, that my <laughs> my PC monitor, the one I'm staring at right now, has its own independent volume adjustment that is separate completely from what the Windows volume setting for this device actually reports. I likely ran into this at some point because I will regularly reset this monitor when testing different calibrations on it. If I have one complaint about this monitor was how weak sounding the speakers were. Very low volume in general. Hmm. The other day I was digging through uh -oh. some of the various video settings and then I realized that there is an independent volume control built right into the monitor and that it defaults at 50%. And by simply maxing out that internal control up to 100%, at least transformed, it, it, I mean, it didn't improve the... Uh, audio quality all that much, but is at least I have good volume now out of these built-in speakers that I occasionally use when I'm not using my headphones. Be aware, if you have a PC monitor that you've always wondered why it just seems like it's never loud enough, do double check that its own volume setting within its own menu is maxed out or at least put close to 100% before you go making the volume adjustments within Windows itself or whatever your mm -hmm. OS of choice is. I should say. It's just uh, one of those things I've got in the back of my mind now. Reset the monitor. Oh, check the picture preset. Check the audio <laughs> setting. Make sure your volume is boosted, so to speak. Oh, it's always good to acknowledge when we do things like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just no, contemplating I'm... any number of terrible things I've done over the years. <laughs> The monitor I'm using right now, actually, I picked up almost exactly one year ago to the day. And it is a 27-inch HDR, quote-unquote, gaming monitor, a 1440p monitor, which would be 2560 by 1440. It is an IPS display. It'll do up to 170 hertz, but I generally just leave it in the 144 hertz mode that defaults to. If I want to overclock the display, I can. But I find I am, at the qualities I game at, I generally am not going to hit above 144 hertz unless it's uh, an older title per se. <laughs> but I have to say, it's an Asus uh, ROG, ROG Strix monitor. 
the XG twenty seven AQ of all things, and I adore this thing. I, I find it's just perfect for what I need in terms of a high frame rate, plenty bright. It gets up to maybe five hundred nits, but this close to my face, I'm generally running it at about fifty percent. And over this last year, I look forward to using it every day. Period. And I'm just I'm simply glad now that the volume <laughs> controls are a little more realistic, or at least uh, not as uh, <laughs> not as horrible as I was bemoaning all this time until I realized it was a user error. That's all. Just a user error. Oh my goodness. Sense corrected. Such a user error. <laughs> well, you know, it's I I've, I have acknowledged, uh, yeah, the number of errors between keyboard and chair I've made over the years has allowed me to keep producing content that helps people because I make mistakes. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. Uh, Obi Wan Kenobi on Disney Plus uh, watched Ooh. it with the family. I'm just going to leave you with two words here, people: lightsabers, because uh, I love a good lightsaber fight. And uh, if that's a spoiler, I apologize. It won't happen again. Also excited slash terrified to hear that Hacks has been renewed for a third season. We've been watching that, my wife and I especially, on HBO Max. Uh, it is snarky and funny and super tight. And uh, god damn, the first two seasons were so tightly written. I'm terrified uh, that a third season will just screw up the really amazing ending of the second season. I also am super happy for all those writers and actors and actresses and everybody else to get more work. Uh, and I hope they can maintain the joyful experience I had with the uh, first two seasons of Hacks. I've also been exposing my oldest to Deadwood, another HBO series. Um, oh, my. Well, it's, you know, it's a Shakespearean Western. I'll just leave it at that with so much foul language. It is so brilliantly executed. Um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, if you've got a question for us, ask at avxl.com is the best place to send it with all the deets you can spare. And if you're more of a Twitter kind of person, just tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at avxl. And uh, uh, one more time, a big shout out to all of our patrons, patreon.com slash avxl. We will have our July hangout info up on patreon.com slash avxl quickly. And in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We will catch you next week on AVXL.